Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... What happens when you start growing, the cash flow, it doesn't get better, it actually gets worse as you have to have more inventory and as you take on more customers and then also your relationships with your manufacturers and what terms you can get from different people and and everyone needs in that supply chain needs to get paid and if you have any weak links in that supply chain, the whole chain breaks. When Mark Kelly's dad first took him scuba diving as a teen, it began a lifelong love of the ocean. That love was fully cemented much later when Kelly finally picked up a surfboard. He only learned to surf on a board at the ripe old age of 30. Well, that is old in surfing terms. Mark Kelly came to adore surfing and its connection with the sea and nature. Having learned the international sales, marketing and distribution ropes, working as a senior executive with massive global brands Adidas and Bausch and Lomb, Mark Kelly took the leap to start his own surfboard and stand-up paddleboard business. With an eye on disrupting the somewhat haphazard cottage industry of supplying surfboards in Australia, where you could often order a hand-shaped board and it wouldn't be delivered till months later, Kelly set his sights on three essentials to give him an edge, thinking globally, going after the mass market of beginner surfers rather than world champs, and offering retailers certainty of supply and quality brand boards to offer customers. Two decades ago, Global Surf Industries was born, and today it's a major supplier of surf and paddle boards in some 74 countries across the globe, all done from his base in Manly Beach, Sydney. Then somewhere along the way, Mark Kelly became a political activist too, without really meaning to. In 2018, he began what started as a meme, really, a small local grassroots campaign with the title Vote Tony Out, the Tony being former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. The campaign's aim was to vote Tony Abbott out as the federal member for the seat of Warringah. Gutsy? Yes. Provocative? Surely. Successful? Most definitely. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. You'll have to tune in to part two next week to hear how Mark Kelly built a political campaign. In part one, Mark talks of the highs and lows of building a global manufacturing and distribution business and why he and his company live by their mantra, life is better when you surf. Hope you enjoy Mark Kelly, founder of Global Surf Industries. Mark Kelly, welcome and thank you for joining me on Build It Thou Come. I'm so pleased to speak to you. Thank you, Helen. Now, you've been building your business, which I believe is marketing, distributing, selling various brands of surfboards and paddleboards around the world for pretty much two decades. Yeah. But you've done that under the radar, I would say. There's really not much media written about you. And I know one of your business aims is to be the biggest, smallest business in the world. Have I got that right? So yeah. what does that mean? Biggest, smallest business is just a sort of, I guess, a concept that I have, which is to be a big business, but not have a thousand employees. It's also just to run it as professionally as you possibly can. And a lot of that is about 
employing the right technology and having the right people and just having a mindset that is one plus one equals infinity. So to have a big professional offering as a business, but to do it in a small, not a huge imprint in terms of number of employees and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think 20 years ago, I was thinking about it yesterday, we have always employed great technology. And now, if comparatively to you know 2002, a lot of that technology is nearly free. The business is based here in Australia, but we also run a US company, a New Zealand company, and we sell boards in 74 other countries around the world. So when we first started, I got a 1-800 number from the US, so 1-800-FAX and a 1-800-CALL number. And that was about 1300 bucks a month for each of those lines. Wow. And now, I don't even know if there's a cost. We use Skype in so you have a a local number in the us that i still have now but we have the us entity has customer service and people over there it literally what used to cost 18 or 1300 bucks a month costs nothing now yeah so extraordinary change in that period as you said you you sell surfboards in over 70 countries yeah you own the distribution areas of the usa australia and new zealand all out of your operation in manly beach in sydney which is actually home which is home okay so Paint us a picture of exactly what Global Surf Industries is now and and what are your markers of success? So what it is now, it's a company that runs 11 brands of surfboards and sound paddleboards. And we mainly focus on the beginner to intermediate market. So there's only one world champion and there's a whole lot of professional sort of surfers and we don't really look at that at all. I don't think anyone will ever win a, a world title on one of our boards. Right. Because if you look at, if you think of a triangle and you think of the bottom couple of layers of that triangle, which is the widest point in probably any industry, any sort of sport or participatory thing is where the widest number of participants is. And there's only, at the top of that, there's only one world champion. So you're not selling to the world champion or the handful of professional surfers. No, it's, it's more than a handful. No, but. it's anyone who wants to learn to surf and or is into surfing. Our boards are really focused on getting people into the sport and basically on participation and then getting them to enjoy that and then getting them a higher level of enjoyment through better sort of skills. Yes, I guess so. You're appealing to a more mass market. Yeah, in a mass market in a sort of boutique, in a niche industry. So what is Global Surf Industries? Continue with the description. Uh, Yeah, so it's basically, it's just a a business, a a distribution business. We own and run the brands. We we have a couple of licensing agreements. 85% of our revenue comes from business to business and 15% is business to consumer. So we've had our own web stores since about we were pretty early. I think it was about 2005. So really early it was Web 1.0. A good part of our business because it connects us with our consumer. And so we have live chat on our website. We've had that for probably 15 years or something. And that's just great to sort of give people confidence that they're buying the right board. Our average sale online is about 450 US dollars. So it's not a flippant purchase. It's not a, I'll just buy this because of the size of a surfboard and the cost to ship it. There's a, once you've bought it, you own it. There's no returns. It's just too expensive. It's quite an interesting thing like that. So getting someone to be confident about that they've bought the right board up front is a really big part of the business. And we do that through our retailers as well, just educating them what the right boards are for different people. But with consumers, I think just having that connection with the consumer 
in a distribution company is a really key part of the business. Yeah, so you're talking to your consumers all the time, trying yeah. to find out what they want out of a board. Yeah, and then just sort of, I guess, matching them with the right products. The other part of the business is dealing with our international distributors around the world, whether they're in Sri Lanka or the Philippines or Taiwan or Europe. It's all over the world. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun part of the business as well. Fantastic. So roughly how many boards would you sell a year? A year? I think the forecast this year, 2022, is about 30,000, 35,000 around the world across all the different, different countries. How did COVID impact you? Surfing loves COVID. COVID loves surfing. So when everyone's in lockdown and you could only do a couple of things, except for New Zealand where surfing was sort of banned, where you couldn't do bike riding, you couldn't do anything, it was pretty much closed down. But in the US and Australia, things would just went gangbusters. So meaning surfing was one of the things you could do. Yeah, you could and do a lot of people yourself. got time back. So if you think of where we are in the city now, you lose an hour or two hours a day. If you look at Australia, everyone lives on the coast pretty much. And so not having to commute to work just gave people this freedom. So I think surfing was one of the things. We had so many people last year coming back to us saying, I haven't surfed since I was 30 or 20 or 15 and I'm now 50, 60, 70 years old. I want to get back into it. And they were buying their first board. Wow. And there's a great story at our factory outlet in Brookvale. There's a lady came through there who was in her 70s. She hadn't surfed since she was 19. And she wanted to buy a board and she picked up this little sort of shortboardy thing and said, I used to ride this. And I was like, well, I don't think that's going to be the board for you now, <laughs> but why don't you try this one? And so she bought that and then came back the next day with a girlfriend of hers who was 75. They hadn't surfed for 60 years or something. And now I saw them at the beach the other day. They're down like they're two little teenagers going surfing every other day in Manly. And that for me really typified what happened over the last couple of years. And it really just bought, I think, the kids being at home, there was a lot of people that went, okay, they'll start school at 8.30 and they were pretty much done by 10.30. And so the parents are like, okay, we've, what are we doing? So the first wave in sort of March, April, May of 2020 was we sold out of softboards in Australia because all the families were coming in buying softboards all around Australia, this happened. And then the next wave after that, it was the dads going, okay, I want to get in the water with the kids now. And then the next wave after that, probably like September 20 was really the mums went, you know, I'm like getting left out of this either. And so it was just a beautiful thing, I think, to see all these people getting back in and surfing for so long has been dominated by the big clothing brands who are really just clothing brands, but they sort of steal surfing for their marketing purpose. Where in the last couple of years, surfing has been about participation, not just here in Australia, but all over the world. In Israel, our distributor over there is selling lots of boards and he's reporting just an amazing amount of people being in the water. So it's sort of everywhere. And I think for me, I just love the fact that people are actually getting in the water because it's such a beautiful, soulful thing to just be connected with the, the planet that way. Business-wise, if you're selling out of boards, you were doing pretty well then in COVID. Yeah. It, well, I think it was just you couldn't forecast what was going to happen. So there was uncertainty at the beginning for you. Were you worried? Were you panicked in perhaps March of 2020? Uh, I remember I had to renew our lease on our factory outlet store, which was our trade showroom. But because none of our customers could come anymore, we basically, when we had a four-year lease, we just turned that building into a factory outlet store because we were committed to the lease. We didn't want to walk away from that. But I remember trying to negotiate with the with the landlord to say, hey, pretty uncertain. Can we have a rent reduction? He's like, I'm not losing any money. I, you know, if you don't want if you want to get out of the lease, get out of the oh, lease. But girl. it wasn't it was sort of there was no empathy there. But in the end, it didn't really matter. He was sort of saying, 
look, I'm having to borrow money to pay for this thing. And I was like, hang on, well, if you're borrowing money, so I just took some money that we had and did a deal with him and paid the rent a year in advance and got a big discount because I had some cash sitting there. So it was an interesting, I sort of fixed his problem and he fixed my problem. So Take me back to the beginning of Global Surf Industries. How did your business actually begin? I was running sales and marketing for another company in the industry called Surfarder International. And I ran five business units around the world. We just started a French company. We had a Japanese company, company in the US, a small one in Hawaii. And what's Surf Hardware? Surf Hardware is a company that if you see surfboard fins, they patented the removable system of surfboard yep. fins. And then from there, parlayed that into surf accessories and it had a great global footprint. And so I ran sales and marketing around the world and then helped all those business units sort of run. So that was a great for me. Before that, I'd sort of come from global businesses with Bausch and Lomb and Adidas. So I sort of knew how to run marketing and sales. For global sporting or sunglasses too, I guess. Yeah. So then going into surfing, that was sort of fun. I only learned to surf when I was 30. So really? So you didn't sort of come up as the little grommet who loved surfing no, since you were eight or nine and then had no, to fall was, into it? I was it, born it? in Canberra and then we, our family moved to country Victoria. So it wasn't until I was, I think my dad got me into scuba diving when I was about 15, but that formed a love of the ocean for me. But yeah, I didn't learn to surf till I was 30. That's why I'm really co- quite connected to that beginner intermediate because that's quite fresh in my mind. I'm 58 now, but you know I can still remember that that connection of being a beginner. It holds our company in good stead, actually. Yeah. So why did you make the leap from working for those big global companies? You could have had probably a great life, travel, surf, good living. There were some things going on in that company and they were the three owners wanted to, to sell out of it and they were sort of having a hard time just communicating with each other and I was like, oh, you know, I'm a little bit over this. So I thought about all the, the resources that I had and the people that I knew And then in that moment, I was thinking forward 10 years in the industry and thought, what would change in the next 10 years? And then with the resources and knowledge that I had, what could I make happen in two years or one year? So I was sort of trying to find something from the future and and fast track it. This was back in around 2001, 2002? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that would be my niche. And so I did it with another partner then. And so the surfboard thing was still quite a cottage industry at that time. So we thought what we'll do is we'll make brands, we'll make models, and then we'll sell those to the stores. So you would get a shaper or someone like that to make you boards and you'd put it under your brands? Well, that's what the industry still is. It's still a lot about sort of hand shaping and local production. But because I'd worked for Adidas and Bausch and Lomb and these companies, I sort of knew international manufacturing. So we basically outsourced our manufacturing to a big company in Thailand. And then from there, we now have boards made in Thailand, Taiwan, China, but they're specialist global manufacturers that work that we work with. And that was going to be our point of difference is that when, you, when I first talked to all the retailers, they wanted four things. They wanted support, they wanted margin, they wanted consistent supply, and they wanted pull. So they wanted brands or good design good to, design to where pull cons- people. Yeah, the consumers could sort of buy. And so I thought, that's not that hard. Like those four things should be, that's normal in a should business. Should be basic. Yeah. But if you looked at the local market and the local sort of manufacturing, it was put your order in September and you'll get your board by March. Mm. So it was still very cottagey really. Yeah. And this is 20 years ago. And still, I think with a lot of that sort of domestic market, it's still like that. It's still that boutique, custom-made, which is fantastic. 
but it doesn't really suit a lot of retailers and the, what their needs of the business are. So we set, a, set about sort of building that business plan and executing that. Didn't think until that time I'd ever had an idea that was good enough. And I think that's the thing, you know, when listening to a couple other interviews that you've done, it's the right time. And I think timing in this in, in life is everything. It's sort of like that sliding doors film. It's like that one minute can make a big difference. But I think in your life, you know, there's different stages of life and some you are more willing to ha- have risk and some you want less risk and more sort of just consistency. Or So yeah. I think the big thing about being an entrepreneur or starting a business is it's all fun and then you start employing people and then, you know, there's sort of all this security that needs to take place. Suddenly the responsibility of, oh, my gosh, all these people actually depend yeah. on me and depend on our product. Yeah, and when those people start having kids, then it sort of that heightens a little bit, you know. So it's a, it's quite an interesting sort of journey, I think, being a business owner. Yeah, just back to sort of this beginning period. Where did the funding come from? Did you have to borrow? Did you have some savings? Did you ask family? Yeah, no, we had we had money of our own. Just and that was basically just money that we saved and payouts from leaving uh, jobs and stuff. Yeah, you don't really appreciate, I guess, how much money it takes, and you can sort of think we'll be fine, we'll do this, and you try to work out cash flow. But as you get into it, a business is just a big pit of money that it just it's not as bad as a boat, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> Hopefully there's some return, whereas yeah, perhaps a boat there's not yeah, so much. And it, but it is definitely to fund cash flow in a like a business like ours now. You know, on any given day, we'd have up to 10 containers on the water going somewhere in the world. So, you know, we're cash flowing that until we get paid for it. And how scary is that really? Um at the moment, because of COVID and the cash flow, it's actually not scary at all because you know there's pull in the marketplace. But at some stages, you know, when you've got lots of employees and you've got lots of cash on the water and then we can get to the point where we buy something from a manufacturer, we put it on a boat, which if you say to go from Asia to our East Coast warehouse in the US is nearly 50, 60 days. It goes into the warehouse and then you sell it to your customers over there. You could be... 180 days out of the money. Wow. So Before you get any money. Before you get yeah. your money returned, yeah, yeah. With, with obviously profit on top of it. But at the same time, if you're doing that globally, there is a cash flow drain that a lot of people just don't think about when they're starting the business, you know. And did you think about it or did it actually suddenly dawn on you, oh, cash no, flow, always, oh, really important? Oh, no, it was always important because of the business that I'd been in. What happens when you start growing, the cash flow it doesn't get better. It actually gets worse as you have to have more inventory and as you take on more customers, it's sort of this exponential growth sometimes. Yeah. So, And then also your relationships with your manufacturers and what terms you can get from different people and, and everyone needs in that supply chain needs to get paid. And if you have any weak links in that supply chain, the whole chain breaks. It's quite interesting that word supply chain and it goes from raw materials supplier to manufacturer to shipping to you know your local trucking company to the end consumer if any one of those parts doesn't work or is out of kilter then the chain breaks yeah and how is that chain at the moment given that there there's a lot of talk in australia any anyway about supply chain problems Uh, in the last i'd say 2021 for me was Waking up every day and something somewhere in the world had gone wrong and you had to work out, okay, what do we do now? It was so consistent that- The need to problem solve was consistent. The need to problem solve, yeah, as a business owner. And I think most of the people you talk to, that would be the same. It was just one event after another went, oh my God, what do we do now? Like what? So 2020 was pretty good because we had inventory. 
And as we got to the end of 2020, you could see the wheels start falling off a little bit as far as just shipping and supply chains because in 2020, I think about 40% of the ships in the world stopped running. And then all of a sudden you started to get an escalation of shipping costs. So it used to cost cost about maybe less than $2,000 to get a container from Asia to say South Carolina. And so now that costs about $27,000. 2000 to 27000 yeah. from Asia to the east coast of yeah. the United States. And in States. Australia, it's gone from around about 1000 to about 14000 So it's sort of interesting that inflation is coming like a steam train because of the costs in my business that I've had to absorb, but then you can't absorb them for too long. So then you have to pass them on. So, But does that mean also, does that cause you to think, oh, maybe we shouldn't be manufacturing in Asia anymore? It's just too expensive to get stuff out of there. Well, no, because I did an experiment in Australia and tried to work out if I could have a certain amount of the product made here, but the prices I could get it for is the same price as we sell it for right now. Wow. So it sort of just doesn't add up. And we have, I guess, scale that we have. Because we make so many boards, our biggest saving is raw material costs. And then we have a centralized point of manufacturing that we can ship anywhere. Yeah. But if I had it made in Australia, I'd still have to ship it to the US or Europe or wherever. Just back to, say, the cost now to get it from Asia to South Carolina is 27000 per container. What are you doing about that? How do you, are you- We just pass, pass the cost on. You have on. to pass it on. Yeah. So the cost of boards has gone up. Well, the cost of everything has gone up, you know, and I think you'll find that, you know, as people, the inventory in their warehouse starts running down and the new stuff comes in, they literally have to pass the cost yeah, right. on. So, so this is the inflation. This is inflation that you're, train you're, that you're seeing. You're yeah. seeing and so, you know, then, then you have all of our products that we make are made with Australian or US material. So all our resin comes from Australia and goes to Asia. All the foam raw material goes from Australia. So then their price is going up because the ship, is going up there. So you've got this double whammy. So the second part of the thing is now all the raw material costs have gone up. So you have this little incremental cost of goods going up at the same time. So you then have to pass that on. So since COVID started, we've had three price rises and our prices would have gone up probably nearly 30% now. You know, it hasn't really affected demand. The good thing for me is it's not just our company, it's every every company. So it's not like you know, you're Helen, just suffering. Yeah, Helen, your yeah. products have gone up, and yeah. then people say, "Well, I don't want to buy that." It's, yeah, it's everyone's playing the same boat, so yeah. there probably will be a, I guess, a slowdown in demand because obviously, if things are thirty percent more, maybe people can't afford them. It's no different in in any industry, I don't think, right now. Building, I think everything will everything's going to go up. Mark, was there one move that you did or one decision that really catapulted the business? Back in those early years, was it the deciding to manufacture in Asia? Was it going offshore to sell? Well, no, I think that was just an incremental part of the business anyway. I think the main thing we did was just listening to customers. And before you started the business, we we basically thought about as much as we could what the key drivers of the business were. You know, so you're sort of doing this investigation and at the same time you're saying, hey, if we could tick all these boxes, would you deal with us? And everyone's like, sure. And so when you build your products and then you go out three months later and say, okay, here's our portfolio of products, here's the pricing, and then people go, wow, you've actually listened to us. And so over the years, until 2020, I would be away 20 weeks a year. 
in different marketplaces around the world or at the vendors in, in, in different parts of Asia, just listening to people and trying to continue to make the best decisions for the company and how we run it, how we, how we run supply, how we run you know, the products into the marketplace and making sure that they're meeting the needs of both you know, the consumer and the business, business that we're dealing with. It's a very grand name, Global Surf Industries. So I, I want to ask you, when you first started, was it always a big vision for you or did you think, I'll just have a little business, I'm sick of working for big companies? I have never had in the last, I guess, nearly 40 years, all the jobs I've had have been globally based. It was funny because I know people who in Manly who have always had just the, their business in Manly. So when they think, they think of, you know, maybe Seaforth to Curl Curl. <laughs> but I've always had these jobs where I've been flying around the world and, and I used to just be able to go the day before and go to the airport and get on a plane and go anywhere I sort of needed to. But that was my business brain. The global surf industry was, was just I think it was just how it was going to be, you know. Yeah. Did you grow up in a, an entrepreneurial family or uh, where no. do you think this streak came from? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, for me, I've just always had this sort of, I guess, entrepreneurial mindset and just looking at things going, how does that work? And I'm, I'm always interested in how things work and how business ideas are evolved and stuff like that. But I, yeah, mum and dad, dad was just a sort of they were just really hard workers, you know. So it wasn't really we didn't. They didn't have businesses of their own or anything. But like you that. had a good work ethic then, from yeah. From I think from mum and dad, then. yeah, they were both very hard workers, and you know, right until the end of their mum's retired and dad passed away a few years ago. But they were always hard workers. Yeah. How difficult was it to expand internationally? Because I had all the contacts before we got going. People were saying, "Hey, we're he- we, we're hearing on the grapevine what you're doing. We want to be part of it." And so for the first two years, I just kept pushing them back saying, hey, I want to build a business in the, in the local markets first and then I'll expand. But yeah, pretty much from day one, we had people knocking on the door to buy boards in Spain or the UK or wherever. It's interesting because your main mantra, Global Surf Industries company mantra since day one, I believe, is life is better when you surf. I mean, that sounds very esoteric. It sounds very touchy-feely. But also kind of common sense. Is it just a gimmick? No, it's funny. That came up. I went to a marketing conference in Singapore. They were talking about like companies having mantras and stuff. And I was sitting there with all these people when, you know, they're all in suits and I've got a pair of thongs that are kicked off under the table and I was wearing a pair of shorts. And people looking at me go, what are you doing here, mate? But it was for me, it's just all been about learning all the time. And so... It sort of was all about that, something less than six words. And I was just drawing on this piece of paper and sort of wrote, life is better when you surf. And for me, it was really, it was about my life and it was about the employee's life and all the people in the company as a primary, that was the mantra was for us. But then when you take it to the next level of for the consumers and all the people that we were talking to every day, you could tell, you know, they get so much joy out of surfing that it's just a highlight of their life. And it is quite an addictive thing being in the ocean and, and riding a wave and there's a romantic aspect of it, but then there's a thrill aspect of it and there's a connection with the planet aspect of it. And I think for me, it's just, it is a real truism. You know, life is better when you surf. It's great. Do you live by it? Like, do you surf every day? Uh, pretty I, much? I surf every day. I didn't surf today in Manly because it was about 15 feet. And I thought if I go and have a surf now, I'll be 
little bit tired for the rest of the day. So, but I, I, I'm literally in the water every day on one of a, a series of craft that we've got, or just having a swim or something. Yeah. yeah. How long before you were profitable? Well, this is really interesting. So, this is back to the timing thing. So, when we first started the company in 2002, there was a film that came out called Blue Crush. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And it was a teenage sort of film about girls and learning to surf and being in Hawaii. And we just launched pure coincidentally off the back of that film. And so when we launched, every 13 and 14-year-old girl wanted to learn to surf. In the first year with virtually, I was running customer service in Australia on that 1-800 number. And so I would be up, the phone was near my bed, it would ring, I would be basically you know, nude or in my underpants and, <laughs> and I would wake up from a dead sleep and go, global surf industry is now going to And I would just basically walk to the computer and then punch in the order and then we would fax that off to one of the warehouses. We had a warehouse oh, in fax, of course. New York, Florida or LA. And that first year with I think one or two employees in the US, me running customer service from Australia, we turned over $3 million in we were making sort of about 12 or 40% net profit then. So we're sort of, we launched in a super profitable way, but then pure, purely coincidental. That helped Australia and you know, it was a really interesting time. And have you stayed that profitable since? Oh, uh, no, it's, it would be good if it had, but <laughs> life doesn't. I'm sure it's been up and down. Yeah, it's been up and down. It's been a roller coaster ride. A couple of years, we lost half a million dollars. And they're just things that you don't can't control. Like a few years ago. But can you work out why you lost that money? Yeah, absolutely all the time. So we run a ERP system called NetSuite. We've had that employed for close to 10 years now. We got into that really easily. So we've got great reporting that we've set up. So we're all across the numbers all the time. Mm. We do have a real analytical process, but a, and again, a pragmatic approach to business. So you can sort of tell when you're going off. Sometimes demand just doesn't meet what you think it's going to be. Yeah. When you did lose that money. Yeah. Did you come close to failing to closing down? A couple of times we were pretty close and a couple of times we sort of, we had some borrowings and different level of money that we owed people, but, you know, it always came back. So you wanted to fight on and make it work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We are at a point in the industry globally where we're a major supplier to that, to the industry at, at a retail level. So this is always one of the measures of business that if you went away, what would happen? And I guess if we went away, there would be a gap that then would be filled, but it would take a little while to, to fill that gap. Yeah. But for us now, you know, we, we've got a really good offering. We've got a really good portfolio of products. We've got a really loyal customer base at both, I think, at a consumer level and then at a business to business level. So the business is, is it's the right size now. So it's also interesting, I mean, how you master risk-taking and, you know, as a startup, is that absolutely crucial to kind of get that right, to not be too risk averse, but manage risk? Yeah, I think when you first start, you don't even think about it. It's not, it's not something that you think about. It's sort of you're running as fast as you can. And then if things go right, then you're running faster. And if things go wrong, you're trying to sort of play whack-a-mole a little bit. Lots of times you're not in control of when things go wrong. So if you had to start a business in 2020 and then experience 2021, man, that would have been a hard period of time. I think if more established businesses, they probably had a little bit more momentum. But like like us, for instance, because we had a customer base, we had consumers, we had all that sort of going. But if you started in 2020 and then you experienced 2021, 
it would be a really hard yeah. thing. Yeah. So what did COVID do? We talked a little bit about it before. What did it do to your profitability from the end of 2019? Yeah. Can you explain what so sort of happened? In, well, in 20, at the end of 2019, I sort of decided to change the business around a little bit. And then I was nearly to the point of closing the business down. And for me, I just wanted to maybe do something else. It wasn't that much fun. I think the economy in Australia was all over the place. And so I sort of started about doing that. And I sort of said to the staff, this is what I want to do. At that stage, we had about 22 employees and we got down to about six. So they sort of willingly kind of left yeah, they, or looked for other work. Yeah, they just went, went and looked for other work. And I, I was just going to close it down over a period of time. And by the time we got to sort of March 20, you know, I was turning over half a million dollars in Australia a month and I was the only employee and we had myself and our accountant. And I was like, this business is a bit too good to be closing down. So we, I rang our guy in New Zealand and talked to the US guys and said, hey, I want to rejig the business and we called it GSI 2.0 and I only want to have six employees and so we're not going to have all these other employees. We're going to do this this way because I think it'll work. And now, you know, our profitability is over 20% net profit. It's cash flow positive every month. We've employed a lot of automization. So within our ERP system, I've looked to that to save heads, basically. And costs? Well, the costs are already there. Right. So it's not costing you any more to do automation. And how do you, what do you mean? How do you do that? Uh, so it's just things like building better platforms. So now we pretty much don't do any data entry. We've built a dealer portal that they log into. They can see live inventory. We do that at a consumer level. So where the consumers buy stuff online and then you just have to basically tick a box and say send and it goes to the warehouse. There's automations of reporting and different things, but you've just got to look at what your business needs are and you can pretty much automate anything if you want to, you know, once you've got a good system. There's got to be a million surfboard makers or shapers yeah. or surfboards available to people in the world. How did you make yours different? How did you get what the US billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban says startup founders have to find their edge to outmaneuver their competition? Yeah, so in 2002, that's pretty much what we did. So the marketplace wasn't that evolved. This, this is an interesting point, actually, because in 2002, we had a really, really innovative business in, the, in our industry because there wasn't anyone really doing that, offering portfolio products that aimed at the beginning intermediate market. As we got into the 10-year, 15-year sort of cycle, then there was a lot of people who'd copied us and they were... I guess much smaller companies than we were because at the time, I think was the maximum we got up to was probably nearly 28 employees. Our payroll at the end of 2019 was 160,000 US dollars a month. That's a bigger, smaller business that you've got to, you know, be making at least that much profit every month to pay for the staff. We've inherited the business that we were developing every day, but someone who was going to come in and compete against us didn't have that. So they were much more nimble. So I think right-sizing the business that we did, you know, at the end of 2019, 2020, that for me has been really refreshing as a business owner because I can see, okay, we're much more nimble now. We got there based on what we'd done for the 20 years before that. But it's really interesting, I think, as you, as you go on, that if you don't have the startup mentality every day, then how competitive are you? Because someone is going to come and, you know, like you think of taxis and Uber, Disrupt. Yeah. And so you've got to sort of at some stage disrupt your own business because someone else is going to disrupt yours if you don't do it. I think for me as an entrepreneur, it's easy to lose that sight. But if you don't lose it, 
you could lose it all because someone else had just come and pull the, pull the carpet from underneath you. So you've really got to keep disruption thoughts questioning yourself, running a ruler over everything all the time? Not constantly, otherwise you might go mad. But I think every couple of years, you should nearly have sort of make it a project to say, okay, if we started this business today, how would we do it? Because I think you would find that you would do it quite differently. It's a really, I think it's for nearly every business. If you think of banking and look at what's going on in fintech now, there's so many fintech apps and companies out there that just offer great services and you're getting, you're learning about them every day or even look at a simple one we employed a few years ago was Slack, you know, bringing Slack into our business to save on thousands of emails a day or we were using Zoom probably nearly 10 years ago. All the employees around the world were all home-based. We never had an office anywhere. So we were, we've been using Zoom for so long. And then last year, or the year before, everyone started laughing. Saying, oh, look, the world just found Zoom where we'd been use, using it for so long. But it's all those things that you need to be using all the best tools you can, but at the same time looking at your business going, hang on, how can someone pull the rug from under, under us or disrupt our business? Next week in part two, hear more from surfboard industry disruptor Mark Kelly on how he created and built a grassroots political campaign that ended up disrupting federal politics and contributing to former Prime Minister Tony Abbott being voted out of his blue ribbon seat of Warringah in Northern Sydney after being its MP for 25 years to be replaced by independent Zali Stegall. That's part two next week. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.